Hi, this is Betsy Fuldus-Lyman, producer of Connect-A-Pod. And this week and next, we're going to celebrate two of our favorite contributors to Connect-A-Pod who are graduating high school this year. So congratulations, 2021 grads Laz Myman and Andre Devansons. This is a recast of Laz Myman from last year. Laz graduated from Cleveland Humanities Magnet with high honors and is on his way to UC Santa Cruz, studying political science and history. We wish you tons of luck, Laz, and we hope you have a great time at Santa Cruz and come out fighting strong for social change the way you want to. You can also hear Laz talking about campaign finance reform on the Contested Politics podcast. Link will be in the description. You're an accomplished young man, Laz, and Andrea and I are so proud of you. And we're so thankful for all of the time and talent you've given to Connect-A-Pod. We couldn't have done it without you. Congratulations. Hi, I'm Betsy Foldis-Myman. And my fellow Connect-A-Pod co-founder, Andrea Lopez, and I are using this COVID downtime to bring you highlight interviews with some of our favorite longtime collaborators. Today, we give you Laz Myman. Laz has been contributing to Connect-A-Pod since it was just a volunteer effort, every Tuesday for five years from 2012 to 2017. Laz is a humble guy who will be disconcerted by me talking about him, but as you will hear, Laz is very insightful, and I rely upon his input often. He has a wide-view lens of the world that inspires me to look deeper and exposes what is not authentic. We look forward to him moving up to the producing team with our upcoming Changing the Narrative series this fall. In this interview, he shares his views on history, stress, and surprising alliances. From Fred Hampton to Taoism, Laz shares his inspirations and how to cut up an ox. <laughs> All right. Last Henry Myman. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, what do you want me to say about myself? Like, Well, how old are you? I'm 17 years old. Uh, I guess I'm a senior now at Cleveland High School in Reseda, California. Um, yeah, that's about it. I'm Betsy Myman's son. <laughs> yeah. But so much more. <laughs> well, I have other things, but isn't that your job to like ask me about them? That's true. <laughs> well, let's start with some of the your aspirations let's start with that what is it that you would like to do like what with my life mm-hmm. um well i want to go into a field where i can help people you know uh so whether that's government or social service or working with unions like something that can help organize people for self-empowerment and betterment you know and, and something that could help serve the people and lead through their own leadership, if that makes any sense, you know, to help channel the the energy that's already there. Mm. And so, but that wasn't always your aspiration, right? So what what different aspirations have you had along the way? And how did you find... Throughout my whole life? Yeah. Yeah. And then what did you finally end up with here? How did you you finally get to this point? Well, I think I've always kind of been at this point um, throughout my life. You know, I, it's just that I, I've finally figured out what I actually wanted to to embody those emotions that I've always felt, you know, and those, those sen- sentiments that I've always had. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like at first I wanted to be a director. I wanted to do filmmaking. You know, that was when I started, you know, when I was like in elementary school and like a little bit of middle school. You started and that way back in kindergarten. You were like making absolutely, little films and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm. But what I liked about that was that it was telling human stories, you know, mm-hmm. and it was about capturing someone else's life and 
again, it's like a similar idea. It, it was about other people, you know, it was about humanities. It was about people. Um, and I mean, then after that, I mean, it really just transitioned from filmmaking into politics, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, of course, I was influenced by doing the Model United Nations program in middle school. Um, that I would say was the main reason that I started the shift. Mm-hmm. But I, I realized that it just, right now at least, it fits what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. and you've just gone through, you know, yeah. at, at core as well. You yeah. Know? So why don't you explain a little bit just real quickly so people know what core is. What does that mean? Right, so core is the magnet program that I'm in right now for high school. Um, and it's basically an interdisciplinary humanities program. So all of the classes overlap. Um, so you're learning about similar things in your English class, your history class, um, occasionally your science class, depending on what grade you're in. Mm-hmm. But all of it overlaps and all of it's focused on the humanities, um, you know, including literature and the arts um, and history. You know. Yeah. And, and history has always been something that's really interested you. I mean, oh, absolutely. From, you know, yeah. from, from way back when you were drawing stick figure Romans to, <laughs> to now. But I think that that ties in with what you were saying before about what drew you to directing was stories. Yeah. And when you talk about history, you're always talking about um, the stories. Like, like, it seems that, like, what draws you to history? And, like, what are some of the stories that stand out in your mind that you've identified with or you've identified a movement that speaks to you? That's a lot. Yeah, um, that's a lot. I mean, I think what draws me to history is, like, the aspect of humanity, you know? I mean, I just think it's interesting because, you know, everything that's happened before is happening now. You know what I mean? Like, it's like it's not... I mean, Marcus Aurelius, he was like the Stoic philosopher in ancient Rome, and he always talked about how everything has already happened. Nothing is necessarily new. And I think that's what draws me to history so much is because you can take it and you can relate to it, even though the setting is so different. You Mm -hmm. know, even though the external factors are different, the way things play out stays the same throughout history because humans stay the same throughout history. You know, we physically have not changed that much as people. You know, right. we're, we're still the same beings. So how we do things isn't going to change all that much throughout history, you know, even though the external factors will. Yeah. I think what really interests me, and I was telling you this last night when we were having a conversation, what interests me about how you look at history yeah. is that you find an empathetic point that makes sense for what's going on now. And we were talking about, you were telling me about Fred Hampton and the Chicago Hillbillies. Yeah, the Rainbow Coalition, the first Rainbow Coalition. Yeah. Right. And you applied that to now. So, like, all the things that you see in history and things that you find on your own, right, then you are then able to extrapolate that to what's going on now and, and view present day through that history. So why don't you say a little bit about what that is real quick? The original Rainbow Coalition? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um... So it was just something that I read about recently, and it was in Chicago in the 1960s. And um, around that time, there was a huge migration of um, primarily white Appalachians uh, moving from West Virginia, Tennessee, and Kentucky up uh, to industrial cities in the north. And one of the places where they settled was in um, a neighborhood called Uptown. The, The whole central part of Chicago is just north of that. And essentially, they were living in a slum. And they started forming their own um, sort of community organizations that started out as street gangs, Mm -hmm. but they became community service organizations. And 
At the same time, the Black Panthers were also gaining prominence in the city's west and south sides, and the Black Panthers, led by Fred Hampton, reached out to these white Appalachians who, you know, like loved Confederate flags and Hank Williams and all that. And but the Black Panthers reached out to them and said, "We're going through the same struggles. We're going through the same problems. Let's work together." And so there was this period of a few years in the late '60s, around 1969, when the Black Panthers. Puerto Ricans and white Appalachians were all working together in the city of Chicago to help reform the whole system that had been set up by、uh, Mayor Daley and Democratic Machine there, and they were actually successful. They set up、um, service organizations throughout their communities. They set up their own clinics, their own hospitals, their own soup kitchens, and eventually they were able to actually oust the district attorney for Chicago. And later on, it would go on to inspire really the the、um, first African American mayor of Chicago, who began began to dismantle the daily system、wow. that had taken over the city. And it, but it was because all of these really seemingly separate groups all recognized they faced the same struggles. They all worked together and set apart their racial differences to fight for the reforms that they could all benefit from. Yeah, and it's yeah. fascinating. The symbols were what you were telling me this last night, and it was kind of crazy. What What are their symbols that they used? Right. So、um, the Young Patriots organization. I didn't mention that earlier. So the Young Patriots organization was the Appalachians. That was their organization, and they used the Confederate flag as their symbol. Which, like now, it's like you know, the Confederate flag has always been a symbol of hate. You know, don't get me wrong. It's like I'm not a fan of the Confederate flag. You know, but it, they used it to organize their people and. They were gonna get rid of it, but Fred Hampton, the head of the Black Panthers, said no, keep it because it's a good way to organize your people. So you have these these wild photos of the young patriots walking around with jackets with Confederate flag patches, but next to them they wear Black Power buttons, and it's <laughs> like it was just a、um, a really weird time.、Yeah. And so knowing what you know about the things that you are tr- attracted to in history and the things that you are perceiving now. Right? How does that translate to what kind of politics you want to do? Do you want to be a politician? Do you want to be someone who works behind the scenes? What is it that? What do you want to do when you say politics? Is it organizing? What is it? I don't know yet. I'm 17. I haven't been to college. <laughs> I, I, I mean, like. <laughs> I always forget that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. We'll find out. Okay. Well, that's cool. Yeah.、Um, so you are obviously smart. Right and all your life, thank you. You've you've had this whole thing of being smart, being smart, being smart, and it's been shoved at you, right? So, and you've done you know some of the the programs for extra smart people. <laughs> so you know, how do you feel about that? Like, what does that label do? Did it benefit you? Did it hinder you? How do you feel about like being labeled like that? Well, I don't think there's one way to be labeled smart, you know. Like, well, there's the highly gifted moniker that you've always, you know. Yeah, I know, but it's I I feel like everyone has their own different area of intelligence. You know what I mean?、Mm-hmm. And like I feel like the the whole way we look at IQ and like you know highly gifted and all that is super outdated. You know, and so in a way, I mean, it's helped me because it's given me a re- really quality education. You know, within like a I, public school system. Absolutely,、yeah. within a public school system. You know. I've had a really high quality education, and I'm thankful for that. But I feel like that should just be the norm, you know. I feel like it's unfair that because I was recognized as being, you know, quote unquote smart, 
you know, because I was recognized as that, I was put into the system that everyone should be in. We should all have this kind of quality education. We shouldn't separate people who we think are smart from everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, I think everybody has their own smart, their own intelligence, you know, that can be uncovered, you know, and mm-hmm. I think that by labeling certain people as smart from an early age, it's really detrimental to everybody. Yeah. 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 I think it becomes yeah. overbearing too, you know. Absolutely. Like no, it puts pressure on the kids you label smart and then the kids you don't label smart get left behind. Yeah. You know, it doesn't really help anybody. You know, we should just go off the assumption that everyone is brilliant, you know, mm-hmm. and then go from there. Right. You know, right. and and if you need to fall back, you can fall back. If you want to go forward, you can go forward, but work off of the assumption that everyone has the ability to be smart. Right. Cuz I I just think it's outdated to say, you know, one group of people is smart and one group is not. Well, sure, yeah. because you get different chances, you know, sure. to 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 use that knowledge in different ways that it yeah. expresses itself. Absolutely, and that's not to mention any of the other variables that could affect how you get deemed smart. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's the whole thing about test making bias. You know, that like the people that make the IQ tests and the intelligence tests are overwhelmingly white and old. You know, which means. <laughs> So it means that there's a bias as to, like, what they think intelligence is. And then beyond that, I mean, there's, like, class barriers of, like, you know, who actually goes out to get a test, you know, and who pays for tests because sometimes these tests are expensive, you know. And so it's, like, there are all these other factors that lead to a whole bunch of people that are, like, absolutely brilliant just being left behind and assumed that they're not, you know. Good answer. Good answer. Okay. Um, but that leads to, because where, where you are right now, so you're just finishing junior year and you're going into a summer of college essays and all that, all the admissions hoops that you're going to have to jump through, right? So can you talk a little bit about the pressures of what that is and um, how you're going to approach it? The pressures of what specifically? Of applying for college. Yeah, I mean... Obviously, there's a whole bunch of pressure, you know, because it's thousands upon thousands of people applying and they only take, you know, maybe like 10, 11 percent of them, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, it depends on the school, you know, but like more selective ones, it's like they only take like, you know, the ones I want to get into are only like maybe 40 at the highest percent, you know, and like I could do that. um, But there's still pressure on it on me, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, there's not much I could really say. Yeah, well, uh, we've had some explosive arguments about testing versus not testing, um, you know. Uh, I mean, it's a lot of pressure to balance your life. You know, there's a lot of pressure as to, like, when you should be doing things, um, which things you should be doing specifically, you know, and how you're going to balance that with all the other things you're doing. Because, I mean, yes, I'm applying for college, but at the same time, I have summer assignments and AP classes, you know, and just life. Yeah. And so that's going to add layers. And so I think just really balancing all of those things is, I think, the greatest pressure, you know. Yeah. And also just the inability to really fully um, relax. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like you can't really be completely relaxed when you know you're going to be applying for college in a few months. <laughs> so it's like this summer, it's not, I mean, like, you know, you can, I can hang out and like, you know, chill and like take time, but um, it's not going to be necessarily like full relaxation you know there's always going to be like a looming pressure um 
So I have to yeah. ask you, is this how it is with your the bulk of your friends as it is with you? Because when I was a kid, we didn't know what our grades were until we got our report cards. Like, and you guys... We know our grades all the time. You know your... Yeah, you know them like day to day, hour oh. by hour during the school year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Through, through Schoology, right? Mm-hmm. So you go in and you look. And it's interesting to me because then you, you do something that's very interesting is that you balance your time out. So if you know you have a high A in something right? Yeah. And a low B in something else, you then turn your attention to that low B to make it uh, a low A and then bring the other one down. It's like yeah, you average them out. Or a high B out. to a low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or a high B. Sorry. Yeah. And the, I mean, yeah. Um, does everybody do that or is that like... No, a, not everybody. Everybody's different. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, there's not like one, you know, teenager mindset that everyone has. I mean, it's like, <laughs> You're not representing no, the no, no, teen no, no. world. I, I mean, there are people that do absolutely no work and just don't care. And there are people that do all the work all the time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I know people that work like three times the amount of time as me and have the same report card as me in the end, you mm-hmm. know. And, and so I, I think my philosophy is just do set a goal. You know, set an ambitious goal, you know, which is for me is having an A in a class and then do the least amount of work possible to reach that ambitious goal. You know, and like it, it's not lazy, obviously, because my goal is to have an A, you know, right. the, the least amount of work you can do to have an A is still like a decent amount of work, you know, but if you go over that, you're just wasting your time and your energy, <laughs> you know, it, it's like. It's what? Well, no, that's just so antithetical to like everything that we were taught of you. You've got to be working all the time. No, You've absolutely work as hard not. as you can. And explain why. Why what? Why why it's more why it helps you more to have just that middling. Um because, not middling because it's all yeah. still A's, but like you've said it before to me like why is it not why is it important to not always just be full court press all the time? Because then you'll burn yourself out. Mm-hmm. You know, and then also at that point if you keep doing that and you falter or you fall or like something happens and you're not able to work, like then you're lost. You know what I mean? Like you have to know how to balance things. You know, it's like there's this story. Um, it's like an old Taoist story about this butcher in a square and he was the best at cutting up an ox. He could cut <laughs> up an ox like really easily and it's tough because like oxes, like they like oxen, they're huge, you know, like really tough to cut through, like really stiff meat. But what he did was he took a really sharp blade and he cut through the ligaments and he found the spaces in between the bones and he felt where there were the weakest points and he went with the flow of the muscles and the flow of the cartilage to find the spaces where there wasn't anything. And that's kind of what I'm talking about when I say I do the least amount of work possible is I cut through the spaces where there's emptiness. I cut through the spaces where there's opportunity. You know, I, I cut to find the right amount of things where I can still have a balanced life and be successful. You know, if you just work all the time, if you just keep stabbing that ox, you're not going to cut it up right. Mm. You're going to be wasting your energy and you're going to have a shitty cut up ox. Sorry, a really <laughs> crappily cut up ox, you know? Yeah, yeah. But if you do it the right way and you find the empty spaces, then you're going to have something that's cut clean precisely and you're going to have a lot of saved energy. Wow. You've never told me that one before. That's really? great. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Cutting the ox. Um, wow. It might not be an ox. I think it's an ox. Seems a right. Ox would make sense. It would make sense. Yeah. <laughs> I could be wrong, though. Apologies to any Taoist philosophers out there. <laughs> Where do you want to go to college? 
<laughs> uh, that's a tough question. I mean, uh, right now I'm looking at a lot of schools in D.C. Um, because I want to major in poli-sci. Um, so I'm looking at George Washington. Uh, I'm looking at Georgetown. But I'm, I'm also looking at Berkeley uh, in California, uh, as well as Santa Cruz. I just like the campus of Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and American University in D.C. Yeah. Uh, looking at a lot of colleges like that. Do you think a college name matters? It depends on the world you want to go into. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, ideally a college name should not matter. If you get a quality education, it's about the things you learn, not necessarily the place you went. Um, but just the way the world is, uh, yes, a college name does matter. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if you want to go into like politics or something. You know, it's something that people can recognize. Yeah. Um, but you have to keep in mind that college names can also sound pretentious, too. You know, so it's like... Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it really depends on the crowd, you know. If you want to be an artist or, like, a director, I, I don't know, college names don't matter as much, you know. Right. Um, but in the world that I want to go into, yeah, I'd say it matters. All right, so let's go to a different spot. You have an internship with Assemblymember Jesse Gabriel. Yes. Right? So tell us a little bit about that office. Oh, okay. Um... So the office of assembly member Jesse Gabriel. Uh, so he's our local state assembly member, and I work in his field office. Uh, so field offices are not policy related. Um, they're not where they write bills. It's not any of that. It's dealing with constituents, and it's basically um, doing that, doing certificates. It's working. It's basically working for the people that live in the district. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the forty fifth district is basically just the western San Fernando Valley. And how yeah. did you get the internship? Uh, I applied online. You just, but cold, right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. Talk about the other interns and where they're from and where you um, encouraged them to go with that. Right. Um, so what I noticed was that, I mean, okay, so we have to start with really what the 45th District is. So the 45th Assembly District uh, in the state of California is the West San Fernando Valley. And it's very much a district that um, is divided by wealth. Uh, we have areas south of Ventura Boulevard, uh, which tend to be extremely wealthy. Uh, we have Calabasas in our district, which I know is a recognizable name. Uh, it's one of the richest zip codes in America. Uh, and so we have those areas, um, but we also have uh, middle class and some working class areas north of Ventura, uh, where we live in Reseda, uh, primarily middle class or working class and Latino. Uh, we have Latino and Asian neighborhoods north um, of Ventura. And so... Our district is very much separated that way. And when I was interning, I noticed that like a huge majority of the interns that we do get uh, come from South of Ventura or the more wealthy areas in our district. Um, and, you know, it's not like it's like it's not a paid internship. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's nothing particularly saying, you know, we want people from wealthier neighborhoods. It's just that they had the resources or the connections to know to apply. Um, and so... For a while, I was working on a project there uh, where I would be um, focusing on outreach to areas where we get less interns from, you know, um, Reseda, Canoga Park, Northridge, areas uh, that are generally underrepresented in our district, despite making up a majority of the population of the district. And um, the plan, it started to get off the ground a little bit. but not necessarily to the scale that I wanted. Uh, I mean, partially because of everything that happened with COVID-19. But they did start um, interviewing more people from those areas. So 
yes, it was somewhat successful, you know, but I, I basically was just focusing on outreach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, to, uh, yeah. To get a, a more um, equalized cross-section of, uh, of people that were more representative? Absolutely. Right. I mean, our interns should be representatives of the people of this district. Mm-hmm. You know, not just one part of our district. Right. It should be a representation of everybody who's here. You know, everybody deserves to have that government experience. You know, because it's like the next president of the United States could be sitting somewhere in Canoga Park in an apartment building, but they just don't know it. Right. You know, they've never <laughs> been told that they can do anything. You know, they could have the most brilliant mind and the best abilities, but they just don't know, you know? And so if we can give the people of this district a door, why not, you know, why not open it up? Why not let them into the government? Why not give them the experience that they need to help organize? Well, Laz, I think that's a good spot to end. And, uh... Thank you for being game for doing this. Absolutely. <laughs> I did have a little insider information on you, so yeah, yeah. I know. You know too much about me. Yeah. Um. Thanks for being such a great ConnectaPod supporter all the time. You Absolutely. Are, you've been my wingman for since 2012 <laughs> doing this, right? Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. Well, have fun slicing up that ox. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>